We have made it through the first half of 2020. Pride Month has come to an end, ushering in an incredibly uncertain second half of the year. But as my guest today tells us, take it one day at a time. You are listening to Padded Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. I'm your host, Anthony Oluwich. Hello and welcome to another episode of Padded Cell. I'm Anthony Oluwich. Today I shall be having a chat with a dear friend, a brother, a fellow Kenyan, and an amazing human being, Kevin Mwachiro. He is a podcaster and his podcast, Nipe Story, which is Swahili for Tell Me a Story, is a fortnightly Kenyan podcast that gives a voice to written short stories. Before our chat, I will attempt to give a voice to something he wrote. In the middle of a global pandemic and lockdowns all over the world, these are feelings I am sure we all have had. Here it is, Once Upon a Night by Kevin Mwachiro. I miss the night. I long for its nocturnal freedom, the cover of the twinkle and sparkle of the stellar blanket. Before you think that I can read Constellation, let me just tell you, I've only just learned to pick out satellites and occasionally spot a shooting star, if it's lucky. I miss the freedom of the night, the liberty to roam and rave under the moon's gaze. I long for the time when I could toast away the day and roast a friend. Sundowners seemed eternal. The guilt of drinking on a school night now a memory. Does the night miss me? I almost feel like I'm birthing a poem with this piece. But the long thoughts seem to be aborting that. I wanted to be known for my rhymes, but now my prose hits the audience on the nose. Nonetheless, this ode seems odd, but so do these shackled nights. I still miss my nights. This curfew, however, has birthed memories and taken me back to August 1982, when we had our first and only coup, and my seven-year-old years picked up the word curfew for the very first time. I miss those nights. When we were a family, I got my brothers, Baba, Mama, and me. Baba was home by five, dinner was done by seven, and we played Ludo, Monopoly, and Watort Kenyan poker. We watched the news, trying to understand what was happening beyond the black and white world. Fear had made the world lose its color, but we were family. I miss the nights. When you knew that tomorrow was uncertain, though planned and chiseled. Now, tomorrow is pretty much like today. That is certain. Motionless nights, a reminder of the unknowing nature of life. I miss the freedom of the nights. Though curfew is revealing few delights, our new normal divorced from old ways, we've embraced some certainties in the sea of uncertainties. Questions that don't have answers are birthed every day. How I wish the night could shed some light. Uh, my name is Kevin Mochiro. 
I am a podcaster, writer, um, journalist, and gay activist. You are a podcaster indeed. Uh, I have listened to some of your episodes. Your podcast is called Nipe Story, right? Yes, yes, that is the name of the Nipe Story. It it um, gives it, it provides audio versions of short story fiction from Africa. So currently, a good number of them are from Kenya. So if there are any um, fiction writers who are short fiction short story fiction writers who would like to participate in uh, in Nipe Story, get in touch with me. Fantastic. Um, is is it only fiction, or do you also do nonfiction? It's mostly nonfiction. Occasionally, um, I would uh, touch on nonfiction. There are a few nonfiction um, um, pieces episodes in there that, that would touch on, like a, a couple of tributes. There's a tribute to Binyavanga Wainaina and uh, Ken Walibora, two Kenyan literary giants. Um, and then there's one element, it was my own way of bringing my own story and my own history into it. It was a memoir, I think, from my great-grandfather, um, it's called Freedom of Slaves. So those are the nonfiction pieces, but by and large, everything else is um, short story fiction. Brilliant. And you have written a book as well on activism in Kenya, right? Um, yes, it is an anthology, a collection of stories from queer individuals. It's called Invisible Stories from Kenya's Queer Community. That was published in 2014 and then have edited another book that um, had, this was more, it was mostly like a, a bit of an academic paper um, called Boldly Queer. I was a team of editors on that. Um, I've written here and there and uh, got my first short story published in uh, Nairobi Noir, um, which is a fictional um, collection that came out early this year. Great, great. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the the book, The Invisibles. This is a collection of queer stories in Kenya. What was the process that you took in collecting these stories back in 2013, was it? Um, the process for Invisible started in, I would say, 20, 20, late 2011, 2012. That's uh, most of the bulk of the work in 2012. Submitted the first draft in 2013. And it was, it was interesting. It was, it was interesting for me collecting those stories because I was keen on making sure that they, they want Nairobi stories alone. Um, just to tell the myth that um, homosexuality or being queer was an was an urban thing. So for me, it was a, it was it was a fascinating journey to try and discover, uh, also try to learn of other people's queer experiences outside of my own. I, I did my level best to to make sure that those stories were not from people I people I knew or people within my circles, because um, I didn't think that would have been authentic enough. So for me, it was, it was a, fa- a little bit frustrating at one time, to be honest, just trying to get people to trust you. But I think um, over time that, that that hurdle was overcome, but made over, those stories were moving, man. Those stories were moving. And, and in some cases, in a good number of them, they moved me to tears, you know, they moved me to tears. And um, I just want to thank everybody 
who who opted to share their story with me. It was interviewing people in restaurants. I remember I interviewed someone in the back of their car, you know, um, on a Sunday morning. Um, yeah, it it was fine. It was, you know, people were like, just interview me and craft something out of out of it because I can't write. One person had never had put their journey of sexuality to sleep for a very long time and trusted me to share it for the very, very first time. Um, yeah, so it was an interesting journey, and I'm really grateful that uh, those individuals trusted me with their words. Yeah. Uh, at, at the time when you were collecting these stories, had you come out publicly as a queer activist in Kenya? Yeah, yes, yes, I had. Um already been organizing the Outfilm out Festival, and it had already been running, I think, um, for two years. And I think that, that that's sort of, that pushed me out of the closet. I didn't say pushed me out of the closet, but it just put me out there because I, I emceed it twice. And the first time the person who was meant to emcee uh, it didn't show up. And the other organizer, Johannes, was like, well, it's got to be you. And it was me. <laughs> and um, since I'm doing this, I might as well. And I never really hid it, to be honest, Anthony. When I came back from the UK, uh, when I was going to do my master's and stayed there, study, uh, to work a bit, I didn't want to come back and go back into the closet. I had learned, I had experienced what it was to be out and public and free. And I knew I know this was going. I knew this was going to be a different environment, and I was not going to go back in. I knew I was not going to go back in. I didn't have the 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 profile that I had when I came back. I was still navigating this space, but I knew for sure that I was not going to go back into the closet. Yeah. So let's actually talk about that. Let's talk about your journey navigating your sexuality and what that did to your mental health. You did mention earlier that while you were in the UK, you were out. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, it's interesting. When I was in the UK, I just really grappled with um, my sexuality. I think that was when it became its toughest because um, there, was, there was opportunity to, to meet other guys, to, uh, to just live out my sexuality there was acceptance some without any judgment you know without any judgment or fear and i had gay friends who who sort of like couldn't understand why i would leave the club maybe at two o'clock and tell them i have to go to church in the morning i have to go to church in the morning you know um but they're like okay this is your thing you know and most of them were spanish they're like okay maybe this is an african thing we'll just let you be you know but after some time it's it, and 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 i think i tried to be as open as i could and i'd accepted it i'd come out to my bosses my supervisors and i just wanted to i started i started experiencing bringing your whole self into every every facet of my life and it was pretty cool you know but there were days I did I did struggle. I, I really did. I remember I was in a small town in the south of um, England called Bournemouth, and I remember sitting by the by the beach at night and crying and 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 praying that this thing should be taken away. It's just too hard. It was just becoming too too hard. 
um, I spoke to my supervisor, who was my friend at work, and he suggested seeing, um, he helped me get a therapist. No, it was an, another lady I was see, um, seeing, um, like an accountability person from the church I used to attend. And she suggested um, I see a therapist in the, in the city of Southampton, which wasn't too far from me. So I would go there once a week, leave the house really early, and catch a train and two tack two buses. It, it used to take me at least two hours of a commute to for an hour session, and I didn't mind that. And I remember walking. Her name was Rose. The first time I walked into Rose's um, counseling room, and I, t- I remember telling her, "Fix me, fix me," because I am I am sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of the double life. I'm sick and tired. Of, of 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 this conflict and then and that was it fix me and then i remember in her kind in her kind voice she asked me what do you want i'm like i don't want this anymore later on that's a space that i grew it was a space that i got to learn what acceptance unconditional acceptance is not just with rose but um she opened she introduced me to group, group therapy but through the other members of 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 the group i i got a lot of love and for the first time i you know when you when you that expression when people say you choose your family that was the first time i had experienced that that feeling of choosing my family and being with people who accepted me for who i was without any judgment yeah, and, and, and that's usually a thing that most people don't really understand about sexuality. That most of us, most of us queer folk, have gone through a period in, in our lives where we just wanted to be fixed. Because I don't think anyone really wants to live in a world that discriminates against you, that forces you to live a double life. No, no, no one wants that, you know. Um, which is, and I really like the people who challenge uh, individuals who said, do you think we would have willingly chosen to be discriminated, to be kicked out, to be disowned, to be beaten? You know, no one goes out and chooses that willingly, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, I think how society has, has formed sexuality. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I had a, um, I spent, I, I, I think during my early adulthood years, I was involved with the church, um, both the Anglican and a charismatic church in Nairobi, charismatic even, charismatic church in Nairobi. And in that environment, you, maybe it was a theology then, you, you, everyone is broken and everyone needs to be fixed. So you you take you take on that you take on that cross that even you are broken and want to be fixed. I'm not saying everyone is perfect, but in this case, there's as as I've grown, I've learned that we're all broken, but we're all on a journey. You know, we're all on a journey, and 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 be you. You know, fix yourself, love yourself. For me, those are those are things that I didn't get to hear when I was grappling with my sexuality. If we could just go back to your to your journey. It was in the UK that you had your group therapy. How did that play out when you came back to Kenya? It was interesting. When I came back to Kenya, I knew, one, I was not going to go back into the closet. And um, I remember one of my uncles was a counselor. Um, she's passed on, Uncle Mike. And I think, you know, when you, you've come back from abroad, there's, there's lunch, all the relatives come and welcome you back and, and, and all that. And Mike was there and I remember reaching out to him and telling him, I need to see you. I really need to see you. 
um, and he had a practice out in Bulbul, Mbulbul, which is on the way to Ngong, um, suburb of, um, of, of Nairobi. And I remember going all the way to see him there and I was, it was, I was scared, but I knew I, I needed to do it. He was the first person I was coming out to since I just got into grips with myself. And um, I remember going there and telling him that I am queer. And, and he was very understanding. And I told him, I can't, I can't have you as my therapist. I don't want you as my therapist. Um, one, you are family. You're too close to home and you're white. You know, I I wanted a black Kenyan therapist. I wanted a, I remember being so specific. I want a black Kenyan male therapist. And I was specific because I figured I it was my way of preparing myself for any rejection. I'm like, if this guy rejects me, that's fine. You know, I'll know what rejection looks like as I navigate this space. But um, you see, the, the folly of youth. Uh, but the first therapist that he introduced me to was a very kind person. And and he was out at USIU on the other side of town. And I used to go there once a week. He, he, I remember him telling me I was the first queer person he had ever met. And he didn't know how to deal with that. And this was 2006. And um, and we only had, I think, three to four sessions. And then after sometimes, like, I don't need to see you, brah. You're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Go and live your happy queer life in Kenya. And that was it with him. Oh, and, and you were lucky that you were able to get that access to the, the therapy. That is definitely something that quite a number of queer folk in Kenya are not able to get. Brah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't easy for my... It, I was, I was, by that time, I had very, I don't know that I'd run out of my savings or I had very little cash on me, you know? I think I was paying a thousand bob or a thousand five hundred for a session. I wish to make sure I had that, you know, to pay him. And I remember on some mornings I had that and just enough bus fare to get me to see him in USIU and to get me back home. You know, and I remember at times I would have the money for therapy, but not the bus fare to go to to see <laughs> to see him. You know, um, and it was that you know you you hustle just so that so that you can you can get help. And I didn't I didn't know very many people back many people within the community back then. You know, so I was basically on my own. You know, I was basically learning to navigate this back being queer in Kenya on my own. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for that. And it, it is hard. At least I had that money. And I, we negotiated the fee, you know. Um, but it was tough, brah. It was tough being unemployed. And I can't, I don't know whether I sold, I can't remember whether I sold stuff just to cover the cost of the therapy or I just made sure there was just enough in my savings, you know, for therapy. And it's quite important, the fact that you actually placed your mental health at such a point of high priority that you basically, you basically nimad yourself so that you can get this particular therapy. Absolutely, mate. I mean, yeah. And we don't often do that. We, we don't often make our mental health a priority and seek help from therapy or any other means of dealing with our mental health. No, no. The thing is, I had, I had, I had seen how it had helped me in the UK. I had seen how it had helped me, 
you know, I had I had I had a lot more self love. Um, I I embraced my sexuality wholly, you know, and you know it's like once you're free, man, you don't want to go back. You don't want to go back in, you know. And I was not gonna go back in, even if I was. And I, I get amazed when I look back at my life, and I'm like, Kevo, where does this det- crazy ass determination come from, man? You know, and then I never used to look at myself that way, bro. The journey to who I am now has is is has amazes me and humbles me sometimes because I didn't think I was a very strong person, determined person when I was growing up. And then people sort of throw reminders, but you did this, but you did this. It's it's interesting how we don't look at ourselves the way people see us. And I still struggle with that, where people say, But this is who you are and this is what we see. And I have to learn how to see myself for who I am. Speaking of determination, you were an avid runner for years and years. Was, was. I'm not much of a runner. Uh, Yeah, I'm not much of a runner. But you used to run a lot and then you got diagnosed with cancer. Um, Yeah, and I think for anyone who runs out there, it, it pushes you to limits that you never had imagined. I don't just say with with um for me it was running for some people it's it's sport but i remember i picked up my running in the uk and i remember that the first time i did a 5k i was like my god i've almost died you know and when i came back to kenya you know you are unemployed i used to wake up early and i'm like i can't just sit in bed let me just start running and i i was relatively fit and i didn't want to lose my fitness so i started running i couldn't afford a gym i figured I, I, and I like, and so all of a sudden I picked up running again. And um, yeah, and I've always run actually. Um, I've always run. Um, so I just figured, let me start doing this. And that's how guys knew I was back in the country. Guys would see me running in traffic. I met people in the streets who were like, oh yeah, we see you running around Kile, Kilimani. You guys run it's every morning. You know, we see you running. And I picked that up. I picked up the running, physical fitness. I used to do boot camp quite a bit. And then, and that was consistent. Um, I was consistently fit. I'd say by the time I got cancer for almost 10 years, I had been exercising actively um, for 10 years. By the time I got diagnosed with um, cancer, I had, be, I, was, I had moved into long distance running. And it was actually, I was pre- actually preparing for a race that um, sort of where I picked up that mm, maybe something isn't quite right here. So I'm just grateful that it was, if it wasn't for keeping fit, maybe I, I would not have known that I was ill. Yeah. So what exactly was it that you were diagnosed with? Um, I was diagnosed uh, with a, bl- a blood cancer that affects the plasma called multiple myeloma. And that was in uh, 20, October 2015. And how are you doing right now? Um, I'm good, um, thankfully. I'm, I'm in remission. Been in remission for almost two years, I think. Um, and, and, I, and I'm in good form, thank you. Um, yeah, we're taking every moment by moment by moment. Yes, and that's the reason why I was asking how you're doing right now. Uh, because I wanted us to talk a little bit about how being diagnosed with cancer and having to go through the daily treatment, how does that change you? How does that affect your mental health? It changes everything, man. 
I remember when I was at the Aga Khan hospital when the doctor broke it down to me. I don't know why it was just so bizarre. I always thought, you know, in life I'd either get one or one or two, one or either as a gay man maybe get HIV AIDS or cancer. You know, it was one of the <laughs> bizarre. It was, you know, it was cancer. And said so that to some extent it wasn't much of a shock. I'm like, okay. You know, it's like when you're flying and they're giving you options, tea or coffee. I'm like, okay, coffee. You know, so the, so that at the back of I didn't tell very many people that, but it was it was that. But sitting in hospital where it was broken down, they were like, okay, this is it. Um, and by then I had just lost. We had just lost my favorite aunt. She had died of breast cancer, and I think. She had been by like two weeks before. And I remember telling myself, this is not going to be almost like, an, like a, a tribute to her. Like, I am not going to go down. I'm not going to go down like this. I'm, I, I almost in my mind, I was telling like, this is not going to be my story. The relatives are not going to come to my death and say, oh, Kevo died of cancer. I'm like, no, that, I remember being fervent about it, um, telling myself that is not going to be my story. I refused that. It was tough, mate. It was, it, it was tough. I think I had to get over that, you know, and I didn't think, and I don't know, I had, I had so much faith in science, you know. I'm like, you don't get cured of, of, of cancer. The thing that I learned and I didn't quite understand when I got diagnosed was when people say this is a mental thing, the battle is in the mind. I'm like, what the hell are you people talking about? This is just dour tablets, you know? I didn't know what that meant, bruh. Really didn't. That was a huge learning curve. I went through a huge learning curve with that. And is it? Oh, bruh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. It is. You have to have a strong mind. I was telling someone the other day, um, and I'm grateful. Imagine, I mean, people, um, sometimes I, tell people, I, I say people are scared more of the side effects than the cancer itself, you know, because we don't know what those side effects are. But imagine that if your side effect was, I didn't, fortunately, I didn't experience nausea as much, you know, but imagine going through nausea for six months, six months, you know, that is, and, and, te- and waking up every day saying, I, I feel this. That's where you have to fight it. You could be in good form, but it's the small things that itch at you, you know, that pick at you, pole, pole, slowly, slowly. The thing I remember that I battled with was itching. It was crazy ass. I, I tell people it felt like someone was sprinkling iron shavings on my skin, you know, and I didn't go through that for, I think maybe for a week or two on and off, but it was maddening. And that's where you realize I have to, that's, that's, you, that's when you have to talk to yourself in your head and say, I, I have to overcome this. I have to fight it, bruh. You know, I'd be busy moving around on my bed, just trying, just, you know, squirming and squeaming just to, to get to that age. Man, so imagine going through that almost every day, or if it was if you if you're vomiting, where you can't keep your foot down, foot down rather. That is the battle, man. When people say that is the battle, it is the small things 
that you have to deal it with your cancer. It is pain, you know, going through that every single day and coming out on the other side and believing that you will come out on the other side. You know, it, it was that, you know, if it was fatigue, it, it was dealing with fatigue, you know, so that's, that, that is the battle, man. That is the battle, you know. And you made it. And, and that's the reason why people say to you, hey, Kevo, you, you are an inspiration to many. We are looking up to you. I struggle with that, mate. I am, I'm human, man. I'm a guy who survived disease. And, and, and if people see me that way, thank you very much. But I, I am still human. I weep, I hurt, and, and it is scary when people, for me it's scary when people put you on a pedestal, because as human beings we fall, and they refuse to see the flawedness, the humanness. So, I thank you, thank you so much, but I, I'm still your friend, I'm still your boy, I'm still Kevo, I'm still Kev, the guy who, 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 I'm, who fights cancer, who who fights to get by every day, who hopes for a cure for cancer, you know, but I'm still, I'm, 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 I'm still, I'm still work in progress. I still think about this disease every single day, every single day, you know, so thank you, but I am human. I am human. And maybe that's a way of keeping me in check that it doesn't get to my head because cancer just humbles you, humbles you so fucking much. It really does. And just to wind up, do you have any words of advice to queer folk out there, to people who are going through cancer? Do you have any words of advice to them? Moment by moment, man. Take it moment by moment. You know, live, live, live for the now. Live fully for the now. You only, I don't even like the expression, life is short, you know, because we don't know, <laughs> you know, everyone's got, everyone's got, everyone's got their date, you know? So I, I don't believe life is short. We have this life. A friend of mine who, who also has battled with cancer recently, and when he went through a slump and he says, you know, I still have too much life to live for this thing to take me out. And I thought that was powerful. And I needed to hear that at that point in time. You still have too much life. And be it whether it's cancer, HIV, AIDS, which affects um, our people uh, more so, or any chronic condition, you still have so much life to live. And you have this life. You know, be, be wise how you live it. Be true to how you live it and live it. Live for the moment, live for the here and now, live for the present. Yeah, the only thing we know is now. We, yesterday's gone. Tomorrow hasn't come. So let's just live for the now. That's beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, Kev, for taking your time to speak to me on all these issues. And I'm sure I'll have you on again at some point. <laughs> no. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for, for giving me the opportunity to be on Padded Cell and, uh, yeah, for giving me the chance to share my story. Appreciate it. Appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Oh, I would also like to thank you for helping me with the Breaking the Silence series that I did recently on mental health for queer folk. It was 
a seven day series that was so difficult to do but you were always always there thank you oh it was a uh, it was a pleasure because i learned a lot from there as well you know i learned a lot and it, and it's i'm always happy to to welcome people into the world of podcasting people think it's so easy you know and people are like where's the money i like the money doesn't come to doesn't come fast which work man it was an honor to be part of that man and thank you Thank you so much, Kevin, for having a chat with me and thank you for listening to our conversation. We must live for the here and now, especially in the condition the world is currently in. Now, I shall take the advice of many of my guests and take a break for the rest of the month. I will be back on the first week of August with a brand new episode, amazing guests, a brand new website and revamped energy to end the stigma around mental health. In the meantime, be kind to yourself and others.